0: The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money.
1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. I'm here with a couple of my regular guests. Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, good to see you. Uh, after good a, to after a long month, right? we missed a show because of my son Paul's uh, birthday. I am mean, not birthday. Wedding. <laughs> I don't think it was his birthday. Not no. until February. And of course, uh, you know, it was a wedding and COVID environment where if you had a checklist of everything you're not supposed to do, well, <laughs> I think we checked all the boxes. Uh, I'm also here with Ryan Repko, certified financial planner professional who worked with me at Rudy Wealth Management, as we call him, Fred, the plus one, the son-in-law. <laughs> right. You can call him with your questions at 217-356-9397, and I received a text that I'll get to in a minute, but he prefaces questions with, does your next guest, uh, guest, Rudy Wealth Management, take call-in questions? Well, of course we do, so feel free to call in with your question instead of texting it if you prefer. If not, you can text us at on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also... I'll email your question to talk at com. I'm still a little rusty. You yeah. take that month off and you get rusty. Today we're going to call, talk about a couple of issues. Uh, some of them are going to be economic, of course, such as the states are finally starting to figure out that they're going to have budget problems. For it. Um, we're going to talk about people changing their retirement plans due to COVID. Um, a lot of people are doing that, and we're going to get into an article that we came across. And that kind of squares with, when i'm hearing from people and seeing out of people we'll also be discussing marriage and money since we just had a (laughs) wedding least that's what paul has scheduled on here today if you have any advice for us or or others actually uh or a mistake people can avoid feel free to call us in and tell us your story about that or things you wish you would have known when you were married that might be a decent discussion i mean we all have well Fred doesn't.
2: He's done everything right, but, but <laughs> do, you <think> most, <laughs> do you think we're going to get the call it says hey don't do it don't get married. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't. Do, yeah, well you're going to get that one for sure.
1: It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. That is important to recognize. You know, we talk about the show. I really like to think of it as an educational show, not telling you exactly what to do with your money or giving specific investment advice. And we talk a lot of times in general terms, but uh In the case where I talk about potential future performance, please put that in the backdrop Mm. of there are no facts about the future. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. We're here to help people figure out the questions, Mm. not so much the answers. Uh, One of my friends and clients, Dr. Bruce Wellman, sent me an article. Now maybe he'll be mad at me for saying he sent it. It's just a factual. It's uh, from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, Fred. It's a special uh, series, State Budget Watts, Watch, States Grappling with Hit-to-Text Collections. I think we all know this is coming. They go into quite some detail and they really talk about it, it may not just be limited to 2020 because so many fiscal years for states and municipalities and et cetera uh, might end, you'll go from June to June or July, to right. June to July. Uh, so this is could easily dip into 21, 22 even and i'm going to go down to look at illinois they went they went state by state and they talk about uh which fiscal year they're referring to the decline and decline as a percent of covid nineteen revenue projections so i'm going to go to one of the whoppers oddly enough it's Colorado twenty percent california seventeen to twenty one percent california we're talking about twenty six to thirty two billion now it is the big right. state, and so we have to put have some sense of proportionality here. Hawaii, 23%, I can understand that. Uh, I'm gonna go to Illinois, obviously. That's all we think about. Uh, Illinois, if I could get, see, I'm rusty. I can't forget, it's I after H? yeah, right. Uh, in 2020, it uh, looks like a 7% shortfall, 2.7 billion, but as they look at the d- fiscal year 2021, 4.6 billion or 12%. Right. <clears throat> uh, they've <clears throat> seems like there's been some movement to try to get some money to the states and municipalities but so far it's fallen short and so what are these i look at these our states oh is, i'll speak for illinois and just my my feelings i don't have the data but it seems like at times we're stretched thin as far as services etc in the state of illinois and infrastructure repair it, that's anecdotal that's just driving down the roads etc i can't help but to think that even when we look at our healthcare system and all these other things. Where's this money
0: going to come from? And what are we going to do? Right. But we could have asked that question almost any time in the last 20 years. We, we've been, the, the problem with Illinois is uh, twofold. One is there's been a downturn in revenues, which is true of everyone, but most other places were not running on empty or running below empty before this happened. So Illinois' problem was that we've had uh, basically 10, 11 years of a strong recovery since uh the 2008 uh, downturn until the the COVID came along. And during that time, uh, as opposed to getting well, we actually uh, didn't. We probably became sicker. So fiscally, when the uh, COVID came around, uh, we weren't uh, sitting on a surplus or or back in a a situation where we'd be reasonably comfortable. We were actually in almost a crisis situation prior to the downturn. So there's two things happening, the downturn plus the fact that we weren't in a good uh, situation going in but if there's any good news it it is that the uh revenues aren't really down as much as people would have expected so if you've been told that the economy is going to decline by 20 or 30 percent or so on you'd have really uh dire predictions it hasn't been quite that bad so far and and again if things turn around they'll probably come back but again Illinois is in a uh in a hole to begin with the hole now is deeper to to illustrate that uh Usually, when you plan your budget, you say, uh, "How much do we expect to spend? Where is our money coming from?" And you have taxes and things of that sort. Well, uh, part of the budget that Illinois is uh, is operating under uh, assumes that there's going to be a two or three billion dollar uh, gift from the federal government, yeah. and that's an assumption, but it hasn't actually uh, proven true yet. So again, we we do face some some difficult times. There's quite a disparity. I
1: mean, I can look at some states. Uh, no they're not the largest states but uh but virtually no impact. Nebraska one percent, Minnesota three percent, Maryland two percent, Maine one percent, um Iowa two percent. I mean here we are right next door. Right. For us we're having a I'll I'll call it a disaster. It's probably hyperbole, but uh Iowa, um as I said, uh really for twenty twenty one maybe four percent you got indiana next to us they're getting hit pretty well not as high as us but eight percent for 2020 and 2021 so it seems like there's enough to go around but there's quite a bit of disparity and it seems like uh, would it be safe to say that the states that have had virtually no impact must or might have had
0: surpluses no not really this is this is how much the uh the revenues are going to go down, how how they can deal with that depends on their surpluses. So if they have uh, surpluses, they they can uh, buffer the the downturn. The other thing, which uh, uh, has some uh, relevance to Illinois, <clears throat> the states that have the huge uh, changes from year to year, like California, one is they're really big. The other thing is they depend very heavily on uh, progressive tax that relies upon capital gains. So if capital gains... Go away. They have a huge downfall, uh, a downturn in, in revenues. If if you have good years and, and capital gains are are positive, they have huge uh, increases. So that that's a very uh, cyclical kind of uh, situation there because of the reliance on a on a, uh, a progressive tax and and the component of capital gains which are very important in California. So again, that that's one thing that uh, is a, a secondary consideration. But if Illinois goes to a more uh, progressive kind of tax situation, it would. Increase the cyclicality of the, uh, the revenues.
1: I'm going to uh, share a text. Uh, I don't know if it says who it's from. Well, maybe not. It doesn't matter. Does your next guest, Rudy Wealth Management, take call-in questions? Well, of course we do. Feel free to call in. Um, like, what should I do with my 401k if the socialist Democrats take over power? Never hear him talk about any what-ifs. Very important questions and then i'm not gonna and he goes on to say it's comical and the news that believes under, okay that must have been just it's part of two different parts of one text but the one is and you know what i think guys we could substitute the word covid for the presidential election uh you know because part of it was uh was that oh, i guess that was not due to covid and he's just specifically asking about the socialist democrats Fred. uh but ryan um this isn't the first time you've probably had even a client say, hey, what are we planning on doing if this person is elected or that person elected? We have clients on both sides of the aisle, and both sides are worried that the other one <laughs> gets in. Um, I covered it probably in some detail. Well, I, I covered it, I know, in one of my articles in the Sunday News Gazette, um, but I've also just recently, which my clients will get this week, covered that once again about the idea of, and I'm, you know, if that was more about the election. Yeah, I guess it's all the same. I, I, I just won't use Democrat socialist, but that fear of the unknown guys is probably causing. I'm probably, I've, I've been through, I tried to figure out was it, nine elections since I've been in this business. Um, and it seems like increasingly, Fred and Ryan, that people are a little more panicked as each election goes by. Maybe, I don't have any data to prove that, but it just, that's my sense of it. And there seems to be this thinking that, and you hear the politicians say it all the time, that this is the most important election ever, you know, it's gonna change the course of the country. Um, What do we do uh, for that? What, what are you telling your clients, Ryan? And, and I know David, who's not on the call today, um, we've all had a chance to think about this, but these are real discussions based on real questions from clients mm-hmm. and real concerns.
2: And and the question comes up virtually every four years. It's it's a perpetual question, and it's one of those things that understandably everybody's worried about. So you have, you come at it with a a sense of understanding, and you know the the clients or anyone who's asking the question is genuinely concerned, if not downright terrified.
1: In some cases,
2: yeah. So it kind of it kind of depends on you know where you stand on one candidate or the other, but I do think. What's hyped up in this particular particular election is that we have kind of more extremist candidates. Um, and that's my terminology, just saying that they're, they're very different in their approach. And so when you get very strong opinions and different beliefs, um, people then start saying, well, I can't possibly follow this other candidate because of X, Y, and Z. So because of that, it's going to be an absolute disaster if that candidate, whichever it may be, gets elected or reelected. Um so for I think for most people it's just so emotional that the the emotion takes over the psychological and the investing component, and you know the after going through maybe a little bit of a discussion with a with a client or someone, you just you come back to the fact that what does the data say when we look at elections and we look at returns and investments, and there is no conclusive evidence whether the candidate that's elected and goes into office for the next four years, whether it being Democrat or republican uh is uh, there's any one sway one way or the other that the market's going to do this, whether it goes up or goes down. And I'd like him back to recent history, going to the last election when President Trump was elected uh, in 2015, took power in, in office in 2016. I think the vast majority of people expected nothing short of an absolute economic decline because of the uncertainty of this non-presidential candidate uh, for this, you know, businessman stepping in and kind of taking over. Um, and then what happened is we saw we have a very large economic run. A lot of the problem, I think, too, is people wrongly assert that the president, uh, whether it's Democrat or Republican, has such a big influence on the economy. They do certainly do have an impact, but not maybe as much as so many of our you know, clients, friends, neighbors might assume.
1: Fred, right? two questions. Is this election really that different? I mean, are, are, are the policy differences different enough to cause you to even second guess
0: maybe uh, your lifetime retirement strategy? No, I, I think there there is, uh, as Ryan said, uh, a much bigger difference this time than uh, in almost any case in the past. But again, uh, it's not going to change anything because uh, the the, the uh, Ryan is saying basically you can't really predict what's going to happen, which is true. For example. Uh, a lot of people were fearful when obama took office in 2009 and that those 8 years were were great as were the uh 4 years of trump as far as the financial markets are concerned and people on both sides probably didn't uh, think that was going to happen the, the the other question though is the the question where do you hide if if you so you think that uh uh biden's going to win and he's going to bring in uh uh all the all the radicals and they'll do really weird things uh what do you do in that case well again uh if, if that were to happen, the United States is still probably going to be the best place to invest in the world, even with those new impediments so i don't think there's any any real alternative. The other thing is if you i don't like to uh, uh, ascribe um kind of purpose to the financial markets, but if you look at the markets now uh you have two things one uh most people, most predictors think that uh, Trump is not going to win. Uh, he may win, he may not. But anyway, the the, the basic uh, kind of conventional wisdom is he's not going to win. And yet the markets are doing great now. So that must uh, suggest that people who are investing think that they can live with uh, a Biden administration. So again, I don't know what would happen if, if Trump were to win, would, would the markets go up or down? If uh, Biden wins, what's going to happen with the market? I don't really know. Mm-hmm. So I think the 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 best result is, it uh, seems like kind of odd, but it's to do nothing. So one of the kind of
1: exercises I go through with clients, I say, well, okay, tell, well, tell me more about this fear. What is it that you have fear? Okay, you're. I'll use this a uh, text person. They might say socialist policies, and uh, I will say parenthetically, I mean, Europe is much further down yeah. that road than we are, and they're still not, I wouldn't call it hostile to capital. Yeah. Uh, there's still been respectable returns in those areas. Um, but what exactly is it you're afraid of? Well, I'm afraid uh, the stock market will go down. And it's like, well, okay, we've been through this how many times? About every five years, regardless of who's in the uh, White House, uh, we probably have to be prepared for a 30 40% decline, because that's what we've been treated to on average averages are a funny thing but on average so we could almost say what are you afraid of fill in the blank it doesn't matter what the fill in the blank is i get to the reality that if we're going to be lifetime investors in the great company of america and the world presumably because we need the returns that historically they've provided or at Mm -hmm. least some resemblance of those returns certainly with the expectation that they're going to be higher than a Fixed income producing right. return like CD or bonds, then what? What is it that? What is it about reality that says, "Look, the only way you get premium returns is to put through, get to live through premium fluctuation along the permanent uptrend." Okay. But there's something about an election that heightens this fear. I guess it's because it's an event that people can focus on. It's a soul of. It's a, just one event. On one day of the year, that has implications. Maybe for some people, they
0: think right. for a lifetime. The other thing, one of the benefits, one of the beauties of the American system is it's kind of slow changes. That going back to the end of World War II, it was a huge surprise when Winston Churchill was voted out of office after winning the war and being the greatest statesman in the Western world. But in England, it's a different kind of situation. Once you uh, control the parliament, you can do anything you want, basically. So, uh, the the Labour government uh, basically nationalized uh, a lot of industries in England in the late nineteen forties. And if that were the case here, if, if uh, Biden walked in and had a blank slate and his advisors told him to do all these weird things, uh, there might be some something to be fearful about. But in the United States, things don't happen that quickly. We have. You know, all kinds of uh, countervailing forces and things of that sort. So I don't think there's going to be like the uh, Bernie Sanders wing. is not going to take over and do what exactly what they want with the economy. I guess I'd be fearful if I thought that, uh, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders was going to be the economic advisor and they do exactly what they wanted in every, every aspect of the economy, but that's not going to happen.
1: I think that's what happens psychologically around elections. As I sit here and think about it, um, we tend to, automatically run as humans to the worst possible outcome. If that person wins that that means this is going to happen and that's going to happen. As if it's reality, as if it's going to be instant reality and it's going to be a disaster. Yeah, and they
0: say and basically politicians say I'm going to do this or I'm going to pass this bill and they don't have the ability to, to do that. And again look look back at the Obama administration, a good bit of those eight years you had a democratic president, a democratic Senate, and a democratic uh, house and they could have done whatever they wanted to in those days and they didn't do it. So again uh, 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 things don't happen as quickly. But in some cases may be bad but in other cases it's probably good to have that kind of underlying stability.
1: The other challenge don't you think Ryan is suppose you tried to make an investment policy out of impulse and you say you know what? I, just, I, I just am uncomfortable with being invested in the stock market even though I know I need to be for the next decade or two or three in order for me to have a reasonable chance of living the life I want. But suppose you do reduce your equity exposure. Now in all fairness, I've had two or three clients where we've done just that, but it's a permanent change. In other words, it's also once you have a deeper conversation, you understand that, you know what this person's appetite for fluctuation is just is pretty much permanently decreased. They've won the race. They can afford to go from 50 or 60 or 70% equity to 30 or 40 or whatever.
2: Yeah, and this is not in response to right. an election event. But this for is somebody
1: a- that would ask us to time, you know, give me your opinion. Okay, based on that, I'm going to get out now and I'm going to get back in down the road once we see if the coast is clear. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no way that an advisor can participate in that because how are they going to know when to tell them to get back in?
2: Right. You, you then start asking the question that you know anybody would start thinking. So we want to get out now. Then you ask, when do we get back in? And, and when we get back in, would the market be higher or lower than when it is now? And you know, generally, the, the answer from the person you're speaking with is going to say, well, of course, the the market, however they define right. it, will be higher. The, you know, it'll be safer at that time. Because things will be better because and more clear. Things will be better. And I'll say, well, that that makes sense. I can understand the rationale. Do you think that when things are better, the prices will be higher or lower? And inevitably, they'll say, "Well, of course, the prices will be higher. They'll be better." And so, you want to do the strategy where we sell now, wait, and buy back in when it's higher. As an advisor, I can't support that kind of a plan because it doesn't it doesn't do anything for you. It's a it's a bad decision to sell now and wait till things get better when prices are higher. You're selling low and buying high, which is the opposite. Uh, so you just go through that kind of a a simple question and answer set, set up, and you and it hopefully rings a bell for folks and some people that bell rings louder and faster than others. Uh, maybe you plant the seed.
1: And I think you you do if, if, if something like that is bothering you and keeping you up at night, guys, I think you have to talk to your advisor, even if that, even if it's when you look in the mirror, that's your advisor of, do you have a strategy that you can live with permanently? Uh, you don't have to be so rigid that, you know, as, as life changes, you're going to make some changes, but just structurally, Mm -hmm. to fundamentally change, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, the ideal situation is, okay, uh, once I know whose money it is, what's it for, and when they need it, it's pretty easy to build a plan that historically would have gotten them there with room to spare. It would seem to me it's just common sense that you do not change that plan unless something else besides current events. It would take more of a life event. I suppose a market or an investment event could could cause the need for changes. In other words, if you go through a, a, a nasty bear market. Uh, in the stock market, and your portfolio is down enough where it probably makes some sense to say, you know what, maybe we need for a while to cut back our spending 5 or 10 or 15 percent right. until we get more of a recovery.
0: Yeah, but uh, but think about uh, the year 2000. Uh, how would you have acted? Well, uh, this. Uh, uh, Unknown virus came along. The economy was wrecked. Things are really bad. Maybe in, I should have twenty twenty in s- twenty twenty. Yeah, maybe I should sell out and, and you know uh, be defensive in in March and then wait until things get better. Well, the question is, when would you have gotten back in? You say Well there's still a lot of uncertainty. Well, you'd have you'd have missed uh, a huge increase there. So uh, trying to guess. So again, uh, if you go back, you would like to soldier. All your equity in right. into January and then got back in uh, in the beginning of April and you had a huge gain, but no one mm-hmm. no one knew to get out at that time and no one knew to get back in. So uh, in retrospect, uh, there were money to be made there, but almost no one did that and you probably ended up harming yourself rather than hurting yourself if you tried to play that game. Well, I think 2020 provides a great background for lessons
1: uh, for people that saying if you think it's possible to time the market consistently. If 2020 doesn't give you, if that's not the poster child uh, for just how difficult of an approach that would be, because even if you knew, as you said beforehand, with perfect clarity uh, uh, that what was about to happen economically, um, any rational person would have sold their stock market portion of their portfolio at the beginning of the year and waited. And But see, that's <laughs> the funny thing about the stock market is it's not when things begin to look clear that prices are higher, it's when they look less dark. And I think that's a concept that very few people understand. But if anybody would have told me, or I think if I would have told Fred Gertz that we're going to close down the economy, which I still think is the world's most expensive, self-inflicted wound, that now everybody's starting to figure out is the case. I said it months ago. Uh, But if I would have told Fred Gertz, or anybody, rational, and said, Here's what's going to happen. We're going to have the biggest decline in economic output since the 20, late 20s, early 30s. And we're going to have unemployment that's kind of pretty close to those levels.
0: Um, what do you think you should do with your money? And I think that would be an easy decision, wouldn't it? Right. Or, or someone said, uh, this is my 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 prediction. I think we'll have the worst economy in uh, many decades Uh we're gonna have the uh, uh, COVID situation unresolved after six or seven months, and there'll be unemployment in the uh, double-digit range uh, and all kinds of uncertainty, and I predict the uh, market will be at all-time high. Yeah,
1: so if you ask everybody, I mean, that'd be an interesting, that would've been an interesting if we could replay life to give everybody a chance to win a million dollars, you know, tell us where the stock market will be, you know, at the beginning of October. Here's the ec- here's the economics in the backdrop. You wonder if anybody would yeah. be so optimistic enough to say they would be remotely close. Some areas of the market are at an all-time new high. Yeah. Some of this is being skewed. However, You know, if you look at five stocks, basically, Facebook, Amazon, uh, Mi- Apple. Microsoft. Uh, well, I'm thinking of the FANG stocks, Netflix, and Google. Uh, certainly that's in there, and the Teslas are in there, too. It's kind of disguised the broad, just large cap market quite a bit, the S&P 500. I saw a study by Dimensional Fund Advisors, and I can't remember if it was through August 31st, I think it was, that showed that, you know, without the top five companies, the Standard & Poor's 500 index was down 3% year to date, even though the index itself was up 10% year to date. It's not, I'm not suggesting that there's a flaw in the S&P 500, yeah. it's just, it's. I've seen this show before a little different variation of it in the mid to late '90s, when basically value stocks were being sold to buy growth stocks. Small company stocks were not doing well. International was not doing well. Well, it was, they were all doing just fine, but relative to something like the Nasdaq index that went up 16 percent compounded, you know, rate of return over the last 10 years ending through June, and a global portfolio that's up nine, it can make. Even, you could make 9% a year compounded look bad. right? And uh, I think that's a, I, I'm starting to see the danger signs there a little bit. I find it fascinating, guys, to see a stock like Apple or Tesla that has a split and then goes up 50% in value just because it had a split. I mean, that's kind of like ordering a pizza as eight slices for 12 bucks and they put cut it into 16 slices and they <laughs> charge you $18
0: for the yeah. pizza because there's 16 slices now yeah, I have a, 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 quick story. Uh, Merton Miller is a Nobel Prize winner in economics. He was a, uh, famous in the financial markets. He was doing some consulting. He was at, I think, uh, Coca-Cola or someplace, uh, uh, talking about, uh, financial markets. And his, uh, theme was, stocks but don't make any difference. You're, you're, you have the same pie. You divide it into smaller parts. No big deal. It might have a minor, uh, thing. And then all of a sudden, all the, all the, uh, People in the room left and ran out and then he asked what's happening He said, "Well there's a stock split <laughs> <laughs> so
1: yeah it, i've I've seen so much and i've I've met merton miller uh a number of times. he's part of dimensional fund advisors at least he's their research scientist anyways pr- pretty fascinating guy and he he has spent a lot of time on the retirement side of trying to fix that um it's it's I think they had some brilliant ideas, but they ran into kind of pushback from the regulators yeah. to try to do some of the things they tried to do. Uh, but yeah, so where I'm starting to see the difference between now and the in 1999, I suppose, is these companies actually do have profits and cash flow. You know, Back then, uh, the hmm. highest-flying stocks didn't have any earnings. Um, but still, some of them are pretty... You know, take a stock like Zoom. I'm not giving an opinion on Zoom, but I think last I looked, it was trading at like 600 times earnings. You know, I I don't know, I mean, and it's a darling, but who's to say Google couldn't get into that business tomorrow by noon and and, and knock them out. So I think there's gonna be a lot of mistakes made. I do think that certain asset classes, this is kinda how I feel after watching this stuff for 36 years, I think when it comes to value stocks, globally even, internationally as well as in the US, small cap stocks, uh, small value stocks, emerging markets, I think we're seeing valuations that may, we may look back someday and say those were once-in-a-lifetime or once-in-a-generation uh, valuations. And you know what's interesting is I think most investors look back to determine what their investments are going to be in the future. And so naturally, when we look back, we always seem to be attracted to the, to the asset classes that have done the best. But that tells you nothing about future expected returns. And I think there's a disconnect there. I think people yeah. make decisions today recognizing, that. Oh, wait a minute, if I can buy a dollar of earnings for $10 versus a dollar of earnings for 20 all things being equal, there's probably some sense to this value premium idea. Though there has to be a risk, right? If, if the value right. premium or the idea that small companies are going to have higher, that they do have higher expected returns, I think that's where people get they get tripped up when they hear expected returns they think that's the return to expect right and we play this little trick on them as people of statistics and finance we go well no no that's just the way that we can model the distribution of outcomes um let me turn my phone off Yeah.
0: the the difference i think also it's not very uh (laughs) optimistic but if uh there is something like that happens uh these uh companies netflix and all the others are not gonna go from a hundred percent down to two percent they may of go course. down from a hundred percent down to fifty or something like that but in the in the nineties you had companies that had no no discernible yeah. uh product and they were and and their uh problem they went from a hundred percent down to one or 2% are down to zero. So at least these companies have something going for them. And, and whether they're overvalued is a yeah. separate question. You know, but if you pay $40 times earnings, you're asking that company to do things it has never done before yeah. over the next 10 years just to earn a 0% return. And someone like Apple's already done, uh, you know, if, if you've done heroic things over the next, last well, 10 years, doing even more in the future may be more yeah, challenging.
1: In the last few years, I think Apple's price to earnings ratio, I mean, how many dollars do you have to pay for a dollar of Apple earnings, has doubled. Now, their growth rate hasn't doubled. Uh, It hasn't even been close to that. My point is, it's not even that Apple's good or bad. My point, whether it's Apple or Orange company, if you pay 40 or 50 times earnings, that company has to do something that has a really low probability of doing just to deliver a 0% return over the next 10 years. Uh, it's It's not a prediction, it's not a forecast, it's just trying to keep people's head on straight at a time where it's becoming increasingly difficult to stay diversified when we see these four or five darlings on Wall Street, you know, just shooting the lights out. So that's just my counsel. Uh, You may think about rebalancing at these points. I know uh, I just saw an article, but we might have talked about this last time, about how many people are making uh, timing decisions when it comes to retirement. Two out of three people have adjusted their, you know, decision on when they're going to take retirement. I guess that makes sense. I mean, but when you think of I suppose more from a job standpoint, certainly from an investment standpoint, uh Fred and Ryan, you know, with the stock market you know at all time highs or close to it, uh fully recovered the broad u s market uh for sure this year, I don't think it can be much related to people's four oh one k plans, so I suspect is if you're one of those uh unfortunate people, and there's a lot of them right let's face it, most of the rich people. Uh, white-collar folks could work from home and do their jobs it's the it's the not that us white-collar folks aren't real working (laughs) people but when I think of people that work really tough jobs and day-to-day jobs uh, they've been obviously more impacted than others I suspect that's where this two out of three is coming from just career problems
0: but those people not everyone has the option though of continuing to work so it it could go either way Uh, if you're impacted by uh by the virus in some particular area like uh hospitality management maybe that's a good time to retire because uh your options have gone away in the work uh, market so again it can go either way uh one reason people uh, uh, retire is that they if they lose their job and they can't find another job they go into retirement uh, the other way is if they things go bad and and uh, they can work they may work longer so it can it can work either direction for example if I were a uh physician and my whole practice was upended uh, because of the virus and had to figure out all, all kinds of things to do to deal with it and I had a healthy retirement uh, fund and I was 65 years old that might be a good time to retire so you know b- basically anything can happen here.
1: A uh, RAND corporation in this article uh, working in retirement can be even smarter as part of this paragraph uh, working after retirement typically part-time is becoming the new normal the labor force participation rate at age sixty five and older has risen twenty percent higher than we've seen in fifty years. Forty percent of workers sixty five and older had stopped working for a while and then unretired. I see that a lot even in my practice uh it's more out of hey, I still got stuff I can do and it buys me some extra stuff but there's certainly been a lot of implications. Um, Fred, I want to get back to Illinois so now one of the things i perennially worry about is, are they going to tax retirement savings in yeah. Illinois? And there was an article in Today's News Gazette about that. You know, it would appear to be low-hanging fruit, except as you have pointed out, the article pointed out, politically it's it's very difficult, but is it impossible? Is it yeah. closer today than you might have thought a couple of years
0: ago? No, I think it's uh, actually further away and so far away that no one will even uh, talk about it for years to come. And, and the reason is that this has become... Uh, I, it's a kind of phony issue, but the issue has become the, the dominant thing in regard to the constitutional amendment. And the constitutional amendment doesn't speak at all to taxing retirement income. Right now we don't tax retirement income. Uh, we could do it any anytime we wanted to. The constitution doesn't prohibit that. And in fact, the uh, when the income tax was approved back in the, uh, 50 years ago or so, the first year it did tax retirement income. Then someone had an amendment the next year and, and they, uh, took out that, and, and you know, in 1970, that was no big deal, but today, with, uh, uh, pensions and 401ks and 403bs and all that, it's a huge amount of money. So the decision back 50 years ago took that off the table and had no short-term consequences, but really big long-term consequences. But now, it's become a kind of entitlement that, uh, it, it, if you wanted to, like, at the federal level, the, uh, the, uh, all reliable is uh, my opponent's going to take away your Social Security at the state level. It's my opponent's going to tax your retirement income. So, again, it's perfectly possible. It's perfectly legal. It can be done any time the General Assembly and the government wants to, but it's not going to happen anytime soon because it's such a, a controversial issue. And the, the other thing that sometimes people don't realize, uh, if you tax retirement income, you're not just taxing uh, school teachers and uh, university employees and – and state workers who who may have uh, uh, pensions, you're taxing everyone. Uh, so it, it's it's not that taxing retirement income is just taxing public employee retirees. who would tax everyone across the board, and there's a, a great deal of uh, of reluctance to do that.
1: Well, one of the things that's really difficult tough- difficult for people, right? Difficult. Maybe that's <laughs> a new word. Difficult, <laughs> tough, and difficult all in one. Uh, for investors, I think right now, unlike any period anybody's ever seen um, is interest rates are just so low. You yeah. Who would have thought you'd have a 10-year treasury? Of course, some countries have it negative interest yeah. rate, but you know, during the great financial crisis and coming out of it, we had a 10-year treasury around 2.5%, and then the S&P 500's dividend rate was about 2%, and I was waxing on in articles in 2010, 11, and 12 about how the stock market, in my opinion at the time, and you know, we don't do anything based on Paul's opinion, right? <laughs> but I think it was always it was worth in the backdrop with so many people saying that the market was overvalued, the next shoe was going to drop, that I wanted to dispel that idea or at least promote an idea that maybe people hadn't thought of. And I used a couple of metrics. I said, wow, when I can get 2% in the 500 best companies in America versus 2.5% in the Treasury, maybe all of a sudden that dividend stream is saying something about the valuation. Maybe it's undervalued. And then I would use something like the earnings yield, which is the inverse of the price to earnings ratio. And anyway, I I was making comparisons essentially, you know, stock market compared to what? Mm -hmm. Compared to what you can earn in treasury bonds and things like that. It suggested to me the stock market back then was way undervalued. And it turned out to be true. Not because I said so, but just, Mm -hmm. you know, that could be unrelated to what I thought.
0: Ultimately, it's because earnings are higher. Right. And we've had. Uh, something that probably is, unlike anything in history, 40 years of declining interest rates. Right. And if, if you go back and look at predictions over the years, say starting, to, our in, ask experts, our interest rates likely to go up or go down, almost everyone every year would say that they're likely to go up, and they've gone down uh, pretty consistently now for 40 years, but certainly for, for 20 years. I think we could say that for
1: taxation, too. I think there's always, I've never met anybody that didn't think taxes were going to be higher yeah. a few years from now or with a new... But now we're we're not at a two and a half percent treasury. Now we have a .75, roughly, last time, three quarters of a percent interest, which I think on $100,000 investment Mm -hmm. would be $750. I mean, that's epic low nominal stuff, yet I can get 1.75 dividend in the estimated in the Standard Poor's 500 index. Now, sometimes when I say that, people are saying, "Oh, don't don't invest in the treasury; invest all your money in the stock market." That's not what I'm suggesting <laughs> yeah. for a minute. But I'm looking at this relative attraction, and from a valuation standpoint, I might make an argument that treasury bonds are maybe the most overvalued uh, asset class, and maybe the stock market in the broad sense is is way undervalued just based on if you capitalize their earnings at much lower interest rates. Um, Maybe we haven't seen anything yet. I mean I think there's there's hope for that, but I don't think people appreciate guys the impact of that dividends can have in a three decade retirement. No, it's not it's not a lot though, right, Fred? It doesn't there's yeah. I went back and looked decade by decade for the last hundred years and I think it was only the nineteen thirties where dividends didn't keep up with inflation and in the nineteen seventies that yeah. decade but if you look over the last 30 or 40 years it's more than doubled the right. rate of increase doesn't tell you anything about the future. Yeah.
0: No. Um, and also I mean we it goes against what we normally say though but what you're really concerned with is overall return and dividends is one part of that and what that part is probably more certain not not certain but more certain than the other part the, the appreciation so Yeah,
1: for sure. I was kind of leaving the appreciation even out of it, you know. Yeah. Uh even though it turns out <laughs> turns out to be a big deal there's appreciation yeah and this is a i even have conflicting thoughts on a daily basis myself um i'm meeting with a 70 year old client let's say and I'm, i might say you know what you could have half or more of your money in fixed income producing investments you know that are earning one to two percent mm-hmm. and i Then there's my other part of my brain that says, why would anybody on earth want to own bonds when you can earn the great companies of America and the world and get double the dividend in some cases, uh, maybe close to triple the dividend income? Not a reason to do it. So I'm just saying how even in my brain, it's sometimes I have a hard time reconciling this idea of now that we're in our 70s or 75 or 80 that we we can reduce uncertainty by putting more money in bonds. Even I question my own rationality. Well, except at times about that. Uh, I can I
0: can turn your own statement <laughs> around on YouTube. And you <laughs> usually do. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's uh, <laughs> cold comfort now, but uh, at one percent, you're at least uh, not losing v- value. Because if you go back to the uh, the old days of high inflation, you, you, you might have gotten an eight or ten percent CD, uh, and inflation was almost that much. So, and and, and in addition, to that you pay tax <laughs> on the return, so you had. A substantial negative return in in real real dollars. So at least now now it's not not exactly uh, uh, great, but at least you're uh, more or less holding it even. It suggests to
1: me there's a lot just this is just my feeling here that there's a lot of people that are still so pessimistic of the future. Mm-hmm that they're willing to sign up for three quarters of a percent return in U.S. Treasury, knowing that the Federal Reserve wants to increase inflation by 2%, So knowing that I'm probably gonna lose one and a quarter percent in real purchasing power over the next 10 years. Do you think that's a fair assessment that that, that there's, the demand for 100% sure investments are so high, that the government can get away with paying three quarters of a percent.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, and there there's neg- there are negative interest rates around the world, and they may, may, may be coming to the United States in backdoor kind of ways, where if you if a company deposits large amounts of money, uh, you, you may have to pay a, a kind of uh, storage fee for that that money, yeah. which ha- hasn't been true in the past. And again, people are probably asking, why would anyone accept a negative interest rate? Why don't you just get cash? Well, the fact is, you if you're a a company that has several billion dollars, you can't put it all right. in, in, in cash. You have to have some kind of financial instrument to hold that. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, Ryan, I want to spend. We have about eight minutes on this. I mean, I consider you still relatively wed type. We just had, you know, just had your brother-in-law Paul
2: get married.
1: And there's got to be some things. How long have you been married? Since what?
2: 2011? Nine years. Nine years. I, I so, wouldn't consider myself a newlywed, but maybe it's because you're my father-in-law. You're like, ah, this yeah, guy's still Crazy middle. kids. Yeah.
1: So I could go through this article and I'm not, but what, what kind of are some of the issues that show up once it's two people? I mean, there could be debt issues. Like, does one person have debt? Does the mm. other not? And how do we deal with that? Do we, do we share in it? What about spending? What about saving? What about different personalities right? Do you have any like do you have any do overs if I had you know if I could go back in the last nine years and do some things differently uh if you say not Mary Katie, that might be a problem for Thanksgiving <laughs> a lot uh, of problems, <laughs> <laughs> but just kind of general financial things that you've addressed. you've had children, yep. you've purchased a home, you've had to purchase life insurance yep any counsel out there for people that
2: I think there's some young people that might listen to this show? Yeah. I mean, I don't think I have any personal like wishes or do overs, but that's because I had a lot of the the background and education on things to do right the first time. Um, but yeah, like you say, like having the conversations on the front end is certainly really important. Knowing is your spouse or soon to be spouse a big saver? Are they a big spender? And if you you know, assuming, I would assume you would know those things, but you have to go into your relationship and your, your marriage and make sure you're both on the same page with how you're going to now live together. Should is, you
1: talk about that before you talk about it? Oh,
2: absolutely. Knot. And and I'm, I would assume most people do, but maybe there are some kind of on the extreme ends who maybe they, they spend more than they say or they say they save more than they do, and it's a little bit kind of swept under the rug. Um, so if there wasn't, maybe there isn't the full transparency, and you believe one one is going to do more c- or contribute more than the other in terms of savings, and you know that could set yourself up for a little bit of of tough conversation. But you know,
1: is it tough to see maybe friends that maybe because of whatever career field they chose, and you know, ours is a slow career. You you know mm-hmm. you, you tend to do very well over time, but it's a little lean in the front end. When it comes time to purchasing a house. How do you decide the difference? Where's that point where it's the bank says we could borrow this much, but the difference between being able to afford it and the sure. difference being able to pay for it? How did you wrestle with that?
2: Well, I did not max out the mortgage that I could take for the reason that I don't want that mental stress and anxiety keeping me up at night thinking, you know, I don't want everything to have to go just right or pretty close to right to feel comfortable every day. So I think there are plenty of people that, you know, say, you know what, if I can get that total amount, I'm gonna I'm gonna take it and run with it. I'm gonna live this, you know, maybe slightly enhanced lifestyle than I should based on buying a, a maxed out home with that mortgage. Uh, you know, personally, it's my opinion, I wouldn't wanna do that. I wouldn't want to live that way because then you you essentially get rid of that option to then have that money available to you for extra saving or for the emergencies that show up. And oftentimes folks that may actually end up, um, maxing out that mortgage, they don't maybe have the same amount of like emergency, uh, room money in case like some issue shows up. So they're kind of like really strapped and everything has to go right.
1: What about cars? I mean, I know you've, I guess
2: you've always bought used cars, right? Yeah. I got a certified pre-owned, although I need a new one. (laughs) He looks at me.
1: Hey, we're we going to have a distribution soon. <laughs> yeah.
2: No, but I I think that's an easy one. And like even when I fall into it, it's like a simple trap of like, you know, there's a lot of nice features in cars now. Like cars are basically computers anymore. Right. And you can get basically anything you want in your car or your driving computer. Um and it's easy to say, you know, I could take a a you know, a decent uh home loan out or auto loan rather. Um maybe I'll stretch it out for They'll 6. They'll lend years. you the money. Oh, they will, happily. Uh, and they might say, "Hey, do it for 6 or 7 years." Um which you know by the time you actually pay that thing off the chances are the the value of the car is less than you know may, what you might still owe and be paying on it. So those are those kind of traps you could fall into. Try to take That's a an easy one. one. I mean, you yep. see your
1: you see your friends driving an $85,000 Suburban and it seems like everybody's doing better than we are. Yeah. What about I'm I'm speaking for myself, but yeah. uh what about children? I mean, you have two. Yep. Um do you think you are finan not financially prepared, maybe emotionally prepared or or Understood what you were getting into from an expense let's put it that way as far as how expensive children are,
2: I think I thought I knew, but I didn't know, and I think that's probably fair for anybody they you know they they could probably you know write down on pen and paper like what do I think i'm going to need and and what are the costs, but you can't envision the costs that just pop up, and you know I think it's very fair to say that like you can't know until you know, and maybe it's when you know. <laughs> you have a couple of kids, you say, let's take a minute, let's pause, let's project what we need for whatever you desire for your kids, whether that's college or not, or trade school or uh, private school, or just going to public school. Uh, You have a lot of leverage you can maneuver, but if you start opting in for maybe the ongoing private school and college, you start kind of looking at your numbers and say, well, do I think that my current lifestyle and projected growth of that lifestyle is going to be able to provide another kid or two kids? And you have to make those hard decisions sometimes. And I think you know some folks do and some folks don't.
1: And right, then, you see a lot of people that think just something else magically will happen and I'm not gonna pass judgment on that, but I think it. my advice would be, Fred, I don't <laughs> know about you, is people approaching you, are gonna have kids, do the math first. Not that, some people are gonna be, criticize me for saying that. It's like, oh, only people with money should have kids. That's not my point. Uh, my brother Tom was never, you know, nobody'd call him rich <laughs> at all. He had six. Six well, kids, six kids,
0: crazy. He's well, I uh, could say Shiite Catholic though. <laughs> I could say the same thing about uh, adopting a dog. <laughs> uh, yeah. a, a dog costs a couple hundred dollars, or three hundred dollars, and then it I costs have do- that per month. I, I have a dog now that uh, has some health problems.
1: <laughs> the bionic dog. Yeah, but <laughs> it's anyway, got a ten I mean, t- two hundred dollar dog.
0: A combination of uh, <laughs> uh, dog daycare and medical care and things. It's a, it's a, it's not big for me, but it could be a big issue. And obviously, that's magnified. Many times over in terms of uh, of deciding on having children, I
1: created a new calculator based on using real returns for you know inflation adjusted mm. returns going back to nineteen twenty six and I'm going to bring in just some things to talk about next show, just saying I, I call it this spend this, not that, and then looking at from an historical backdrop just how much money that seven dollar coffee a day for five days a week cost in real inflation adjusted mm. dollars what's the difference between buying a car every three years versus six years? What about just saving that extra couple hundred dollars a month? If you look at the historical data, it's it's really pretty simple to become even an inflation adjusted millionaire, but it's always going to come through some level of frugality. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably the one thing you guys have learned is I have learned that when we look at our clients with that are really well healed, and that's a different number for everybody. Mm-hmm. That is, they're not worrying about their any their money anymore because if you're worried about your money, you're not wealthy, uh, is that life of frugality. Now, they weren't able to price those decisions at the time, so I'm hoping to create this product where people can price daily decisions or monthly decisions. Uh, and I think, so I think that's gonna be good for next show. Well, I appreciate you guys. So children are expensive, you can say that, right? <laughs> oh, for in, sure. In, in summary? <laughs> hopefully, hopefully
2: it's well worth it at the end fred knows right. it too yeah
1: for fred, fred sends his kids a fancy school so yeah i couldn't you know <laughs> i would know, send my kids you, they all you, went out of state though I, I was gonna say what are you well, saying I you know can't why? you have nothing to stand <laughs> on <laughs> oh that's right it was me that went to eastern in parkland anyway uh this is paul rudy's on the money sorry for the disjointed show it's i'm a little rusty thanks dr fred and thank certified financial planner professional ryan repco we'll be back in two weeks
0: Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.